HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by greatbrewers.com, a social media marketing platform dedicated to promoting the world's great brewers and the beers they create. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In The Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I am your host, Joe Campanelli, and today we have a very special show. Um, we have uh, Mr. Ray Isle, the executive wine editor of Food & Wine Magazine, uh, someone who I uh, I feel like since the time I've, I met you, Ray, I, I, I connect with you uh, extremely well. You're very, very affable, very friendly. Always in a good mood. I've never seen you grumpy in uh, five years. It's all, a ma- it's all a mask, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I-, I wonder if part of it has to deal with your with your uh, Texan background. My-, my business partner Gabe is uh, is from Texas as well, and uh, they maybe you guys have a a, a similar kind of uh, vibe. Yeah, I think there's. A, I mean, I think growing up in Texas, there's a kind of a, a you know. A, well, actually, I can't account for my home state currently, <laughs> but but, um, but it, you know, it, the, somehow growing up in the south does make you kind of relax and, and slow down a little bit. I think compared to the pace of New York, and uh, and you drag it with you wherever you go. So. Yeah. Now, how how does a uh, a kid from Texas kind of make his way into uh, one of the uh, certainly uh, most renowned best food and wine magazines in the country as the executive wine editor. How does, how does that happen? Well, that happens by, by cleverly starting off as a graduate student in English, which has absolutely nothing to do with wine. <laughs> so I didn't, I, it's funny, I didn't grow up in a wine-drinking family. I think probably bourbon and beer were the two alcohols of choice, if, if alcohol was around. So, um, But I did grow up in a kind of a literary world. So I, I went off to grad school in um, first in Boston and then in uh, well, and then New York, and then in California. But but somewhere along the way, in there, I started getting interested in wine, just from a drinking standpoint, which is not a bad way to get interested in wine. And 
I got, you know, it's one of those things where you're operating on like a 14 buck budget as a graduate student and you start, and if you get interested in something like wine, your, your immediate question is like, well, how can I drink something that's worthwhile on my, you know, monthly $14 that I've got to spend on wine? So it's, it's good training for being a journalist, actually. <laughs> it, it focuses you really early on finding value. Um, but the, the key thing that happened for me was, um, kind of down the line, I got a, a writing fellowship, um, out in California in the Bay area and it put me close to wineries and I'd been, I'd been, you know, casually interested in wine. And once I was in the Bay area, I realized I could start visiting wineries and tasting and so on. And then, but your idea to this point was I'm going to be uh, a writer uh, or an academic, a writer or academic or both. Um, you know, the, the standard sort of like, I'm going to write and I'm going to teach in order to pay for my existence. Cause the writing's not going to pay anything at all. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so I was thinking I was heading down an academic path toward, towards being a professor of some kind. And, um, and what happened was I started hanging out at wineries and, you know, which is cool. You go to tastings in Napa and all that kind of thing. And then I realized, I guess at some point I realized that if you worked bottlings for small wineries, they'd pay you in wine, which was cool because I couldn't afford good wine. But if you could, if you could show up on a weekend and slap labels on bottles for, you know, 10 or 12 hours, then they'd give you six bottles of really terrific wine. So this was a way into actually having wine that, um, I couldn't afford. I also found out that as I did that, that I really liked the process of, of being involved in the creation of wine. So then I started volunteering at a winery during harvest, um, working, you know, learning <laughs> useful things like how to drive a forklift, you know, how to, how to haul barrels around without dropping them on your feet, um, how to clean anything endlessly over and over again, because wine wineries are all about cleaning everything all the time. And, um, and I, just fell in love with it. And uh, so I switched my teaching schedule around where I could work harvest in the fall and um, teach the rest of the year. And I did that for a couple of harvests. And then I just thought, that, you know, the hell with this. I'm <laughs> completely done with academia. I obviously should be in the wine business in some context or another. And um, and so I ditched the academic world, um, which uh, I haven't looked back on. Um, I still love books, but I am happy not to be um, in an English department at the moment. Um, I'm much happier in the wine business. <laughs> and, and, um, and then I probably would have moved to Napa or Sonoma, except that I got randomly got offered a job, um, in New York as a, as a supplier rep, as a, as a, a sales guy, basically for port importers. You're carrying the bag around. Carrying, I was carrying the bag and there's nothing like carrying a bag of port in August and going into liquor stores wow. and being like, you want to try some port? It's really great. And they look at you like, you're completely high. What are you talking about? It's nine, 9,000 degrees outside. Why does anybody want to drink port? What and, a truly humbling experience <laughs> to be a, to be a wine rep. Uh, yeah, I, these are, I think the people who are least respected in the industry. Yeah, and it's, and it's hard work. I mean, sales is hard, hard no matter work. what you're selling. And it, you know, I was left fortunate enough to be selling something that I actually thought was really good, which was, you know, good quality port. But, you know, it's it's tough. And, and carrying a wine bag, you know, you end up, you know, after a couple of years, you're sort of sloped to one side because you're always carrying, you know, six bottles of wine on one shoulder. So you sort of end up as a kind of quasi-hunchback, which is unfortunate. <laughs> but it's... It's were, a, were you doing any writing during this time as well? Yeah, I was freelancing as a journalist, and I wasn't I wasn't necessarily freelancing entirely about wine. I was I was freelancing about really anything I could get you know paid to do. So um, some of it was profile pieces. I mean, I've, I did you know uh, profile pieces of various poets. I did um, some stuff for Stanford Alumni Magazine. I did you know I started writing for Martha Stewart on writing articles on collectible coasters or tablecloths. I mean, really you know. 
any as like any freelance you know the, the 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 joke about freelance writers is they they there's there's only one word that a freelance writer doesn't know which is no you know you say yes to you, every you take everything okay. <laughs> what was the most kind of absurd article that you had to write during this time uh, collectible coasters is, is, is up there you know with it i mean it, it was <laughs> you know, you hope to find something in everything, you know, that you write that's interesting. And, and honestly, what was kind of cool about the Martha Stewart thing was it, it it was an opportunity to go to the Museum of Design and, and kind of research, you know, mid-20th century design, which is something I know, you know, absolutely nothing about. So even so, it was collectible coasters, you know, which is, is not exactly Nobel Prize material. Um, but so I was freelancing on the side and I was hauling a bag of wine around and – um, and, and actually, you know, the, doing the sales thing in wine is is great for anybody who's going to write about wine because people tend to forget that there's a, you know, it's a business. You know, you actually have to sell the product in order for it to exist in the world. You know, um, it's all it's all wonderful. You know, taste wine and think about you know, this is a spectacular Burgundy. But the truth is, if nobody buys so and so spectacular Burgundy, so and so goes out of business and mm-hmm. it's done. But what happened that got that was incredibly lucky for me was that I wrote a weirdly enough I wrote a profile piece for um, Stanford Alumni Magazine on a writer Larry McMurtry, who has nothing to do with wine again a novelist and um, and Josh Green at Wine and Spirits Magazine it got passed along to him somehow and basically my bio on it said Ray Isle works in the wine business in New York and he read the profile I was like wow that's quite cool and then he got in touch with me about possibly doing some freelance writing. And that quickly turned into a job offer editorially. So I started out at Wine and Spirits for five years and then switched to Food and Wine after that. But it's, you know, serendipity played a big role in the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, well, it sounds like you definitely put yourself in the right place by having the wine experience, by uh, actually at the wineries, by actually working in the industry while, while continuing to write. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade any of it. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy writing about wine for a living. I feel you know ex- incredibly fortunate. It's it's uh, it's kind of bizarre some days to go in and you're tasting like twelve Chateau Neuf de Pops and thinking they're paying me to do this. This is the most bizarre thing on the planet. Um, but I'll but you know keep let's keep going with it. Um, but having worked both on the on the business side mm-hmm. of wine or sales side of wine and on the production side and then writing about it, it, it it's nice because it gives you that whole picture. You know, I can still you know if I think back, I can still smell you know what. You know Pinot Noir grapes in a in a in a macro bin when they're fermenting right after harvest smell like and that's you know that learning that process of how the stuff is made informs then what you write about and and certainly learning how hard it is to sell the stuff sometimes is you know is is you know a worthwhile experience for anybody writing about wine. <laughs> yeah. so. Now, can you take us through uh, what a, a typical? Do you have a typical week? Um, I have. Well, I have two kinds of typical weeks, I guess. Because magazines operate on a on a on a kind of a, a ebb and flow of, of of busyness in terms of getting the magazine out the door, so there are some weeks which are simply trying to you know get articles into press, which means you know working on them, fitting things, um, you know the the mechanicals of, of once everything is written, sort of turning it into a polished finished magazine. But a lot of you know a lot of the time in between that, I spend tasting, I spend. Um, interviewing people, um, ideally traveling. Um, there's no, there's no like 
rigid schedule to any day. Um, if I am going to taste it, try and taste in the morning, you know, 10, 10.30, just because your your palate is sharpest then, which I'm convinced it's partly because you're starving to death, especially if you skip breakfast, which I often do. So, you know, you're, you're you know, we're animals at, <laughs> at a base level and you're, you know, you're sort of salivating and hungry and so your senses are sharpened and, you know, normally you would, you know, in the past, you know, a few million years ago, you'd run out and kill a gazelle or something, but instead you taste wine. Um, so yeah, we we've had your cohort Megan Krigbaum on the show. Can yeah. you uh, tell us about how your relationship with her works? Uh, well, we're relatively independent. I mean, in, you know, technically Megan reports to me at the magazine, um, but you know, she's incredibly good at what she does. She's she's a fantastic taster. She's um, a good writer, and and so we we kind of work independently but together it's not like i sit there and and tell her what to do on a constant basis there's no micromanaging um you know so she'll be working on some articles for the magazine i'll be working on some articles we try and taste together when we can because it's it's honestly it's more you know one it's more fun to taste with someone else and two it's good to have another person to bounce opinions off of and usually our whoever is our intern at the time will participate in that as well um and we do you know we do a couple of we do some different things. I do a little more of the, of the kind of over overview oversight of what the wine department is doing at the magazine. Um, I do a lot more um, public speaking and TV and, and all that kind of stuff than Megan does. And, and she does some of the, um, she does some different things at the magazine that I do like, like working on all the pairing notes for the recipes, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a great, I mean, it's a fantastic working relationship. I feel very fortunate that I've got her there because otherwise I'd be drowning. You know, you do a lot of the, uh, a lot of the promotion for the magazine. I think you're the, the, the face. I, I do, I do a lot. Weirdly enough, I do a lot of, of media wine stuff, which is not necessarily anything I expected to do in my life. I certainly never expected to do TV about wine, which, um, which turns out to be a blast. Um, yeah, you have a, a special relationship with uh, with Kathy Lee. <laughs> Kathy Lee, um, Kathy Lee's great. She's she's very sweet. She actually has a much better palate than than anybody would ever guess. I I was on the show at one point, and you know, in typical Today Show fashion, we were doing a, a like a, a blind high low tasting with with them wearing you know big pink fuzzy uh, blindfolds, and you know, it, it was completely insane as as that hour of the Today Show usually is. But I poured her, you know, we had a, had a a cheap rosé and, and an expensive rosé, um, and I poured him for him blind, and, and, and Kathy Lee took one smell of the expensive one, one sniff, and she's like, you know, this this smells like Domain Ott. <laughs> and I was like, why are you not supposed to know, be able to blind identify Domain Ott? This, this is crazy. And I think, you know, she had had it a lot out in the Hamptons or something, but still, it's, you know, Gotta give her a little more credit than, than people would guess. <laughs> that is the underground blind wine tasting. I know, I know. <laughs> you know, it's, it was. It, you know, there, there's very little on that show that phases me at this point. But that was one moment where I was like, I'm completely stunned. I don't know what to say. <laughs> so, and you do a lot of the uh, the festivals, the food and wine festivals around the country. Yeah, we do. I mean, food and wine sponsors at, at this point. Food and wine sponsors 17 or so festivals around the country. You know, everything from our the classic in Aspen, which is our big, you know, event that we own, to Austin Wine and Food Festival, um, Nashville, uh, Pebble Beach, you know, the Food and Wine, um, New York Wine and Food Festival here in town, and um, and I generally, if there's a if there's a big wine focus at one of those, I'm I'm there doing seminars and that kind of stuff, which is which is you know it's a blast. I love talking in front of an audience, and it's you know one of the things that's interesting having been in the business for a while is that this you know the explosion of of food and wine festivals mm-hmm. in the country. And, you know, it's, I feel like when I got into the festival, the idea that you could get 5,000 people to show up, you know, to taste wine on a weekend, at, like they do at Pebble beach, it, 
you know, wouldn't have ever remotely occurred to someone. And now, you know, name a city, there's a big wine and food festival. And so, um, it's, it's kind of remarkable. It's a great time to be in this whether it's the wine or the food side is a great time to be in the Yeah, business. I mean, I think it's a fantastic thing that, that you can uh, get people to show up to an intelligent but also fun wine tasting that, that you're leading or someone who's really qualified is leading. Like You get great people like Bobby Stuckey at, at, at Aspen and, and obviously Pebble Beach. There's a ton of, ton of really great people. And you just have regular people showing up because they're saying, hey, this will be something that's fun. And they end up learning a ton. And you have new people who are passionate about wine because, because they came to this. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's a form of, of somewhere in between entertainment and education. And, and what, what's great is that everybody, you know, this is hard to argue with the wine tasting. It's a lot of fun. I mean, wine, wine is at, at, at base level a lot of fun. People kind of forget that sometimes because there's this, this, this pretentious BS that surrounds it at times. But, um, you know, in the end, it's it's a lot of fun to drink. It's great fun to hang out with friends and drink wine. And in a, in a seminar context, as long as the person presenting it isn't, you know, dull as can be, then it's pretty great. Um, having taught, you know, um, introductory composition versus having taught wine classes, um, wine classes are a lot more fun to teach. You know, for one thing, everybody's everybody wants to be there and they paid to be there. So they're, <laughs> so they're really excited about it. But it's, you know, the, the only hitch is that people are usually buzzed by the end of it and they stop paying attention. But <laughs> that's why we te- that's why we uh, do our show at 10 in the morning. <laughs> Fine point. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be back uh, with more uh, with Ray Isle here on In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You are listening to IDID by Obesity on the Heritage Radio Network.org. taste the finest beer and spirits from over 125 breweries and 30 distilleries the craft experience the most exclusive craft and spirit tasting event in new york hosted by great brewers is available to the public for the first time ever join your fellow beer and spirit enthusiasts on wednesday november 13th in manhattan to mingle with the superstars of the craft beverage world tickets are available now at www thecraftexp.com On in the drink, I'm here with Ray Isle, the executive wine editor of Food and Wine Magazine. Now, Ray, you just got back from Portugal, 
Yes, recently. I did. I got back from Portugal um, and just and just published an article in the November issue about largely about Dirk Nieport, um, who is kind of one of the uh, I guess, you know mad genius people floating around out there in the wine business. Um, except he's not really mad, but he comes kind of comes, comes off in that mad genius way. And a little bit about this whole renaissance in Portuguese table wine, not so much port. You know, there's. I mean, I don't know if you found this in the restaurants, but there's, you know, there's extraordinary Portuguese, particularly red wine out there right now that, that people, I think if they're still lost in like this sort of 70s sense of, you know, Matus and, 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 and bleak Portuguese wines that were no fun to drink. And, and the level of quality of some of the top Portuguese uh, wines right now, it's just spectacularly good. And they're underpriced because people don't remember that Portugal produces great wine. Yeah, it's, I think it's great as well. I just got back from, uh, from, well, this was maybe six months ago, but I was particularly impressed with the wines of Bagrada, the, the Baga yeah. grape. The Baga, I mean, Baga is the, is, you know, it's, it's occasionally referred to as the Nebbiolo of Portugal. It's got the same. Maybe that's why I like it so much. <laughs> yeah, I and mean, it's, it's got that same kind of, you know, it's got a lot of structure at the same time. It's got that kind of beautiful transparency of, of flavor and, and delicacy. So it's, it's power plus delicacy. And it's, it's also a pain in the neck to grow because I'm like Nebbiolo. And it's, it's in that Nebbiolo Pinot Noir, I'm a pain in the neck to grow, but I make really great wine. Um, form of grapes. It's funny, Neport, um Dirk just bought a property down there and is, is going to have wine coming out of that um, in the next year or two. Um, but, you know, Luis Pato and his, his daughter, Felipe mm-hmm. Pato, make, I think you have Felipe Pato's wines on your list somewhere, I think. And Amphora from time to time. I, I yeah. really like them. I, I like her quite yeah. a bit Yeah, she's, well. she's lovely. And, and, her, and her father's kind of, kind of tough. So it's yeah. an interesting pairing to have. I had dinner with the two of them together. And, you know, she's kind of a sweetheart. And he's kind of a, a tough old bird. So. <laughs> so. One of the great uh, uh, things about going to Bairata is that everywhere you're driving down the road and you see all these signs, we have the best roast suckling pork like world famous no right. we have the best one no we have the best one yeah and then most of those guys you know they're in contention with each other because yeah. there's really good suckling pork there and the thing is you go another 20 miles and you're right on the beach and you get you know spectacular i mean i was there i had you know these grilled sardines um you know on a little restaurant looking out over the water with with a lot of vino verde and it was you know it's kind of a spectacular part of the world and that, you know, again, I don't think the U S quite realizes how cool it is. Yeah. No, well let's go up to, um, the Douro Valley and to, yep. uh, to port because, uh, obviously you have quite a bit of experience with that. You sold those wines. You just wrote this article on Dirk Nearport, who's based out of, who's, who's based out of the, I mean, he's based out of a Porto and the Douro and the Douro's, you know, the, the Douro is fascinating because it has, has such a, you know, it's, it's the oldest demarcated wine region in the world, older than Bordeaux. It goes back to the early mid 1700s for port production. And and that's been the the signature of the place. And I you know, and I do love port. I wouldn't have gotten into the job of selling port if I didn't love the stuff. And and particularly old vintage port. This it ages better than anything on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. But what's happened is is there's been a kind of an overlay of producing terrific red wines out of the Douro. And there's some there's some completely esoteric, complicated legal Portuguese government reasons why it suddenly became okay to do that. But I mean, it would eat up the rest of the show to just <laughs> to get into it, but but basically, you know, you know, now you've got port production and red wine production, and those port grapes, you know, those those basic port varieties, Turiga Nacional, Turiga Franca, um, Tinta Rorich, and so on, you know, do also produce great red wine, and and so and Dirk is kind of one of the probably the guy who got international attention built around. You know the idea that the Douro could produce great red wine as well as port, and at this point, you know you've got some of the smaller guys like like Crashto doing it, and you've also got bigger mm-hmm. groups like the Symingtons producing a wine like Crisea, which is a spectacular wine. Um, you know, it, 
caveat, I used to work for them, so it's not actually biased. I actually do think it's a great wine. But, um, but you know, it, uh, it's, a, it's an exciting region for that reason. It's, you know, it's got such a history, but it's, now it's, it's almost as if you've got this ancient you know, wine region with, a, with a, you know, a complete shift of focus, or maybe not a complete shift of focus, but a sudden second focus mm-hmm. that just popped up out of, you know, out of nowhere. I have to say, it's one of the most beautiful wine regions I've ever been to as yeah. well. It's it's extraordinary. It is it is you know these these spectacular terrace vineyards going down to this winding river. Um, it's it's a it's a it's a pain to farm because it's you know the the ground is all stone. It's just broken up stone and it's steep, and you know uh, it used to be before they built a dam and dynamited various things. You had to like bring the wine down on these little boats and casks and the you know through these rapids and the boats would tip over and you know the wine would go one place the people in the boats would go to another place and everything would sink so it's it's been a you know it's ha- it has a rough history but um but it's a spectacular region it's it's what's interesting is that it's not developed in the way napa valley is too so it's still you know as a kind of a, a physical environment a little mm-hmm. more untouched and, and certainly less flashy less flash i was also impressed by how how big it is. I, I had no it's, concept until I, I was actually there. And uh, I was like, oh, I, you know, I really like the wines from Quinto de Infantado. Where are they? And they're like, oh, that's like 25 kilometers down. Yeah, down. Like, <laughs> yeah and, and it's 25 kilometers down with vineyards like on both sides of the river all the way down. It's, yeah. No, it's a huge region with, that produces a ton of wine. Um, and, and so, you know, it produces a lot of very generic port that's sold like in French grocery stores or whatever. But um, it is, you know, it is one of the most beautiful um regions of the world and it's similar to and, and though it's much smaller Ribera Sacra in Spain is mm-hmm. another of these you know gorgeous terraced vineyards going down to a tiny river um, it's like a mini mini physically at least it's like a miniature version of the Douro mm-hmm. now we, we were talking uh, recently about how you feel about Australian wine uh, <laughs> you're in love very, with it <laughs> you're very into Australian wine and I have to admit that I have not had a ton of Australian wine that I'm really, really into. So I, I'd love to hear. Uh, and I know that a lot of our we we tend to like similar kinds of kinds yeah. of wines. So t- yeah, tell me I think that. you know Australia is. It, I mean, I think you're not alone among restaurateurs. Certainly in New York, that that you know for the past few years, it's. I think I would feel sympathy for anybody selling Australian wine because pretty much any sommelier is like, uh, I think I'll pass on that. Um, but um, what what's cool about Australia is that. And, and you don't really know it in the U.S. right now because the market has been so dominated by one brand and so dominated by kind of a style of wine, a big, juicy, fleshy style of wine. There's 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 all these young guys and gals in Australia doing incredibly cool stuff. Everything from, you know, there's a there's a whole move in a much more restrained sort of cool climate Shiraz that's, that's you know, spicy and peppery and, and not 17% alcohol or whatever. There's... There, believe it or not, there's spectacular Pinot Noir coming out of the Yarra Valley. Um, you know, no one thinks mm. of Australia as a Pinot Noir region, and the Yarra is a perfect Pinot Noir region. It's you know beautiful, cool, slightly misty, and then um, and then and then some you know kooky guys doing you know everything from uh, natural wines to biodynamic you know growing things biodynamically to making white wines in the style of a Pinot Sherry with a like veil of yeast on top of them. And and a lot of this doesn't come to the U.S. right now because the market's been so dominated by this one kind of simple fruity juicy sunshine and bottle style of australian wine but it's beginning to creep in and and it's it's really exciting if you're if 
you know, as a, as a wine writer, but also as a wine drinker, you know, to see this stuff kind of gradually percolating through the distribution system. And, and, uh, you know, I, some of the best wines I've had in the past year were easily were these old wines in Australia that I tried. That that's extraordinary. So we still haven't seen many of them here in the States, but you think it's a matter of time? I think it's a matter of time. I think what's happening is you're getting, um, the smaller sort of more boutique artisan importers, you know, like AI selections here in New York, for mm-hmm. instance, you know, which is, have largely been known for bringing in kind of interesting offbeat European wines have started to pick up on some of the Australian guys like Mac Forbes is coming in through AI. And that's, you know, that's a classic case in point, you know, um, Vine, uh, Vine Street down in Philadelphia brings in some of those. And, you know, they're never going to be they aren't producing wines in the kind of mass market style. They, they, they're, these are all small, independent, um, tiny estates. You know, it's usually one guy and, and a few acres of vines. And But they're they're beginning to percolate in the system. I think, you know, as is typical, they're going to be in restaurants before they're on shelves. You know, mm-hmm. they'll be in basically on your list before, before they get to, 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 to retail. But um, but I'm I'm confident that, you know, this is, this is a shift. I mean, I was in... I was in um, Barbalude recently, and Michael Madrigal. I don't know if you've had him on the show, but um, he's oh yeah, he's, he's yeah, he's yeah. great. So many, and someone came in with some Australian Pinot Noir, and I was watching him taste it, and he was like, "What is this stuff? This is I've never had this before." <laughs> you know, you know, putting one of the, at least one of the wines on the list, and you know, the idea that he would you know put Australian Pinot Noir on the list at Barbalude is kind of extraordinary and and kind of cool. You know, very cool. Yeah, I, I, Michael is. You know he's always at the forefront of of cool things, so yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm not su- I'm not surprised to hear that. Um, something so something that uh, that I've I've wondered. Maybe you can shed some light on this. Is I, I remember the first time you came into uh, Del Anima, you uh, you ordered a uh, a wine that I really love called Bison Bianchetta Genovese. Maybe the you know, one of the the most obscure wines <laughs> on the list. Uh, that I, I've ne- I still have never seen another Bianchetta Genovese. This really obscure Ligurian white grape here in in uh, New York. And I, I know, as someone who uh, who in the past was an, an academic, someone who <laughs> you, you really like uh, the classic wines as much as the the super esoteric wines. And how do you balance that when choosing wines to write about? Uh, for the magazine, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I have to, I, for the magazine at least, I have to kind of run a balancing act because you know we've got you know a circulation of you know close to a million. So if I if I solely write about um, the the Bisson Bianchettas of the world, then I'll get a ton of emails from people essentially saying I can't find this wine that you wrote about because there's you know because there's only like a thousand cases of it in the U.S. or something maybe. Um, so. But I can I can squeeze in some of those wines, and at the same time I try and keep you know to some of the classics that are good because the fact that something is not offbeat and you know kind of small scale doesn't necessarily mean that it's not good. There's some there's some extremely good wines that are produced in in fairly large amounts that you know can be wonderful. Um, it's a it's a selection process that you you know one you do a lot of tasting and two you kind of just. You, get a feel for what you know what balancing in the in the issue you can do you know it's it's like i mean this australian article that i'm gonna do is be tough because a lot of the wines aren't here and so i'm I'm really just Mm -hmm. saying keep your eyes open for them but um you know at the same time there are terrific wines out there that aren't you know that are findable um and i i you know i'm on a desperate search for those all the time um i do have a you know passion in my heart for um minerally <laughs> non-oaky northern italian whites <laughs> like and are you one. are you finding that the that your readership is also 
uh, kind of fallen behind that that they that they like those or are there are there people who are like we want more oaky fruity wines? No, I think I actually think that there's been a huge pullback from the big oaky um, buttery style, and and I use I, I use um, I, I mean it's funny you you run into this now. You know, across the board, um, with people who are, you know, obviously there's the sommelier world and so on. Where there was a pushback against that a while back, but now kind of, you know, random people come up and say, "Yeah, I don't like those oaky Chardonnays." And you're sort of wondering, like, where did this come from? But um, so it's it's kind of permeated the culture a little more than than I ever would have expected. And um, but what I find on the whole, uh, you know, and also having done this in a while, is that there's just a lot more wine knowledge out there than there used to be, and. Partly that's the internet because mm-hmm. it's it's much more available, and partly it's that we're much more of a wine drinking country, and it's you know, and it's wine always gets hauled along to some degree, at least in the U.S. by the food interest too, and food you know, and chefs and so on have become such a major uh, media world that and and people have gotten so into food that some spillover from that has mean that, has meant that a lot of people have gotten into wine and many more than there used to be, and and I think that the sort of broad scale appreciation of wine is growing, which is, which is cool. I mean, I'm, you know, I, Mm -hmm. you know, I love, I love writing critically about it, but I also kind of, I guess I'm a proselytizer for wine as a whole. It's like, yeah, yes, wine, good. (laughs) (laughs) Wine, good, you know, uh, orange juice. eh, I actually don't mind orange juice, but, you know, drink wine instead of (laughs) Coca-Cola. And uh, uh, one last thing that we should uh, finish up as the executive uh, wine editor of food and wine magazine. <laughs> I'm curious as to how you approach uh, food and wine pairings. You know, I I do two things, which is one, I open whatever's at hand that looks good, that goes that seems like it would be fun to drink with whatever I've randomly cooked. Which is to say that I think that it's easy to way overthink the the food and wine pairing thing. You know that you you can you know if you like Sauvignon Blanc with steak, go for it. Why not? I mean, I don't think it's the best combination, but if you like it, then it's the best combination for you. I do think that there are some the basically you should take it as, as something fun rather than as something involving rules. And there are moments where you get a combination that just blows you away, and you know where you know the the what you're looking for is that moment where the the flavors of the food are heightened at the same time the flavor of the wine is heightened. You know, it's, it, it could be as simple as foie gras and, and barsac or sauterne where it just works together perfectly. And it could, sometimes it's completely random. Like you have a piece of, you know, pizza that has prosciutto and arugula on it. And mysteriously enough, you find some peppery northern Italian white that actually just clicks with it. And, you know, it, it, this is fun. It's not, it's not, a, it's not you know, devote as much effort to it as you like um you know well, so as, as a texan who who really enjoys barbecue uh what, <laughs> what what are your most successful barbecue and wine pairings um well you know beer is really good with barbecue <laughs> um i i barbecue you know i like pretty much anything i mean barbecue's got a ton of flavor um it's got you know and it's got a reasonable amount of fat usually too and i'm i'm a fan of big reds with a fair amount of tannins with it you know um, anything from, you know, from the super grand scale like Amarone down to, you know, um, you know, Cabernet, uh, to, I go with a lot of Italian reds, um, you know, the slightly more, you know, let's say something from the Marque or something that's got a little bit of rusticness to it and a, and a fair amount of, of sort of aggressive snap. Um, because I like that, you know, barbecue so, so. Um, luscious and delicious that you kind of want want a wine that's going to fight back a little bit. But, um, but again, you know, I'll also drink, 
kind of whatever's put in front of me. And I did a story on Muscadet where I went through the South (laughs) trying to find something that Muscadet wouldn't work with. And it worked fine with barbecue. (laughs) It worked pretty well. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of play back and forth. And and the main thing I say to people is, you know, don't stress about it. You know, um, drink, you know, just have fun with it. Um, I think I think that is a fantastic point to end on. <laughs> just drink more wine and don't stress <laughs> about it. Drink more wine, don't stress about it. You know, whatever you like, you like. It's good. Yeah. I mean, you know, have get into it. Have more fun with it. <laughs> this has been a lot of fun, Ray. Thank yeah, you so much. Thank, thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah. This, 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 this is a blast. Uh, and thanks so much to you for listening. This has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. See you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.